1: From MPB Think Radio, this is Now You're Talking. It's a show about the most interesting people and stories of Mississippi. I'm your host, Marshall Ramsey, editor-at-large and editorial cartoonist of Mississippi Today. In 2004, Heather McTeer Tony became the first woman, the first African-American, and the youngest person to serve as the mayor of Greenville, Mississippi. In 2014, she was appointed as the Southeast Regional Administrator of the EPA by President Barack Obama. Now, in 2023, she currently serves as Vice President of the Community Engagement at at the Environmental Defense Fund, and today celebrates the launch of her first book, Before the Streetlights Come On, Black America's Urgent Call for Climate Solutions at Square Books in Oxford. With Earth Day approaching, I have the pleasure of discussing the latter and her unyielding passion for our planet. Heather, it, it's great to get to finally get to talk to you and meet you, um, officially. Uh, I guess for years I followed your career, and it's been an excellent one, so it's it's kind of nice to have you on today. Oh. Hello. Heather, great. <laughs> I'm thrilled that you're on. Uh not only because I mean it's been fun following your career throughout the years, but it's just great to have you on. You it's really fun to watch you on all the national shows and uh you did great on Jon Stewart and so congratulations on that. That had to be nerve-wracking, but you did wonderful.
0: Oh my well, thank you so much, and it is just an honor and a pleasure to be on this show. I am a huge fan, and have cartoons everywhere, and I am just thrilled that there's so much goodness coming out of Mississippi, and happy to be a part of it, and glad I didn't flake on John Stewart too.
1: <laughs> yeah, no, I would have probably just like frozen up. I got I, one time I ended up on CNN, right? I think it was on the morning show with John Berman, and. Uh, It was like, I was on for eight minutes, which, you know, that is like eight years, right? Yeah. And I kept thinking the whole time, I'm going to embarrass the state of Mississippi. And then about halfway through it, I realized, no, there's been a lot of people that have done a lot worse than me (laughs) screwing up on CNN. So, but you were great. I mean, his last words to you were, and when you are president.
0: And, and. There was a lot of editing that was done in those uh, th- those scenes as well because if you would have seen my face immediately after, it's like, oh no, I don't think we can go that route. But thank you. <laughs>
1: <laughs> You're like, well, thanks for the promotion. I mean, seriously. Yeah. Would you, now you've obviously had a fantastic career. You've done you've done politics on both the national and, and the local level, which, um, and I think you and I could have a discussion which one makes the biggest difference. But uh, you know, would you would you accept if you were nominated? And, and run and to, to be president?
0: Oh, no, I think I am definitely much better suited uh, being on the support team, the support staff. I am a recovering politician. It's kind okay. sort of like, you know, going through a 12-step program. Uh, and anyone who is in public service and public office knows that you do it out of a love and passion for communities, but you also got to be a little crazy, too. So I think I still have a bit of that in me. And I'm thrilled to be in a position now where I can be of service to those who are in in public office and um, providing a lot of support on climate and environmental issues that wasn't there
1: a long time ago. Yeah, that's true. And and by the way, I actually got through about three-quarters of the book last night. I apologize. I, I generally try to read the whole thing, and I will finish it up. The book is Before the Streetlights Come On, Black America's Urgent Call for Climate Solutions. Your signing is today at Square Brook Books in Oxford, so congratulations. You'll be at 5.30. I said five earlier, but if people want to show up early, um, that's fine. They can buy more copies, right? Here you
0: go. Absolutely.
1: So congrats on that. I <laughs> you know, obviously, I think you're in the right place. You developed a huge passion for environmental justice, which we'll talk about what environmental justice means here in a second. But I mean, you literally, something lit your fire when you were mayor, and and we'll talk about that too. But like you said, you're in the right place. You're in a, you're in a, Because it's not only about making policy. It's about being able to move and get people excited and to understand it. And the thing about your book, and I think what's really good about it, is that you write in a way that people that are going to be the most affected by climate change can understand why it is going to affect them and what they need to do about it.
0: Right. There are so many places that uh, connect environment to social justice issues that are obvious to us every day, but we just don't get a chance to really see it. And, In in writing the book, I wanted to not only identify those places within the African-American community because it was such a part of our lived experience, but also provide a way for everyone around the world to see how important climate solutions are when we can take a more diverse look at those solutions and really provide insight to what other communities have dealt with, have overcome, and how they've done it. And, you know, there's no better place to start looking than in the Mississippi Delta. That's where I was born and raised and where I saw a lot of what I know now were environmental problems, but just didn't have the lens, I think, of of seeing it in the same way that I do now.
1: Yeah, definitely. But the water system was what really kind of got you involved in this, wasn't it? That, that, cause, Absolutely. Yeah, tell us that story, because I thought that was really a strong story.
0: Yeah, it was actually doing uh, water infrastructure work, and and Greenville has brown water, and you have to be careful because some folks will tell you, you know, our our water is magical. Yeah. <laughs> it's one of the reasons why people continue to remain so useful in their appearance. But it also um, was somewhat of an economic uh, factor when bringing in tourists. Um, people want to make sure when they're. At a restaurant, they have clear water, not necessarily water that looks like sweet tea, unless that's what you're ordering. And we were working on some of the wastewater sewer problems. So in that, uh, our city ended up on the front page of the Washington Post. Uh, it was a Monday morning above the folds, a huge space to be in. It was a picture of a beautiful brown child in a white bathtub full of brown water. And below that was a photo of me talking about these issues and how we were advocating um, with new money from President Obama, who had just established funding for projects such as these. And Lisa Jackson, who was the new administrator from the EPA, came to visit Greenville as one of her first cities. And so she's the one who said, you know, you're doing environmental justice work, right? And I said, no, Administrator, absolutely not. And she just sort of laughed at me and said, no, actually, that's what this is. This is environmental justice work because you're raising and elevating the issues that are connected to people, environment, and how they um, live on the land, how they breathe air, and how they are dealing with water and other drinking sources that impact their life every day. Wow. it was um it was profound because in that moment two things happened one I, I began to see how i have been in this space for a long time just growing up in the delta you know we we know when it's fall not because we learned it in school but that's when football season is and that's when cotton comes up you know we know the harvest schedules you know when deer season is uh we could tell you when there was a heavy snow in Chicago or in the Northeast because the the water rises on the river and the casinos go up. You know, the things that are around our communities uh, and people, that's what drives how we understand the environment. Uh, But it was also really angering.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, just think about it. You were were, uh, doing water systems before they were cool. So that was before Flint and obviously before what we've been going through here in Jackson, too. So you were really ahead of the curve
0: well, Jackson was taking place even then, you know.
1: Jackson- well, yeah, that's true. It's been taking place for years, but yeah, right. no, it came to a head, you know, recently, but you're correct. So definitely on that, but you're right. It is on the justice. And, and I was just looking at your, you know, your, your backstory, your superhero origin story, which I, I love. You had great parents. I mean, your dad was a civil rights attorney that, and your mom's course was a teacher. So it's like. Your dad was out there trying to get justice for people and your mom was educating people and you have become the perfect combination of both.
0: Oh, I have absolutely amazing, awesome parents who I am in awe at every day of just their bravery. Now as a parent myself with children who uh, are facing head on some of these very critical issues that we're dealing with, I I tell my mom and dad all the time, like, how in the world did you do it? You moved from Maryland to Mississippi, had your children here, and fighting uh, injustices that were not only prevalent but were dangerous. I think that they are some of the bravest people that I know, and I owe everything um, to their braveness, to their tenacity, their willingness to share that.
1: Yeah, it's kind of hard not to stand up for for what's right when you've got role models like that and you say, you know what, if they can do it, I need to be doing it too.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. And they've just continued to make such a difference in the lives of people across the Delta, particularly students. Uh, I think that's where uh, my passion for writing even came about and sharing information. It's because my mom and dad are such advocates of continuing education and ensuring that students from the Mississippi Delta have opportunities to be educated. So I, I owe some of that to them.
1: Yeah. Yeah. How many kids do you have?
0: So three. I have two bonus babies. They're older. <laughs> uh, one is away from home now. He's 27. And then I have a 17-year-old. And then the youngest is uh, Devin, and he is six.
1: Wow. Wow. Okay. <laughs> so he, like, runs the place, right?
0: Absolutely, my seven year—I mean, my six-year-old and my seventeen-year-old—are uh, the reasons that I do this every yeah. single day. Just uh, watching it through them.
1: I, I was going to say because I, I remember I've got three boys. I've got three kids also, and um, you know, the m- moment they were born, it totally changed how I approach my job. Because I used to just draw cartoons and make fun of things, which I still do. But it was like suddenly I started caring about this place because it's like, oh, wait, this is where my kids are growing up. It don't, totally – I mean, unless you're like a complete narcissist, it totally changes how you view Mississippi and, and the issues. So I know that has to drive you because you want your kids to grow up in a better world.
0: Absolutely. And, and I think the, the Dariah, my my oldest, is the one who – um, well she's the middle she's actually the middle child but she is the one that you know I watch how she interacts and how she is embraced her own issues that are important to her and modeling a lot of what we see as the need for justice in the communities today you know it, it that drives me to continue the work that that I do and I think you're right it, it does um, force us to look at what are our children doing and what are we creating and leaving a legacy for them to follow in. And I certainly hope that climate and environment is one of the ones that they can uh, tap into heavily across the state, not just uh, in one space.
1: I know. I, I, I was thinking about when I was in college and, you know, I was worried about where I could possibly score six pack or something like that. And And you look at <laughs> They're the college age kids or, you know, I say kids, that's probably not really the right term because they're really more adult than sometimes the adults are. Uh, The fact that what they've stood up for, for for social justice over the last two or three years, and and also, too, their concern about the climate because they realize, oh, yeah, this is the world that we're going to have to grow up in. And if we ever want to have children, this is what we're going to be giving them. So it's been really impressive. When you were at at Spelman in sociology, did you realize at that point that you were going to try to save the world?
0: absolutely not and i still don't (laughs) i think that it's you know this is what um people parents uh folks that are just concerned about what tomorrow will look like people of faith it's what we all do every single day Uh, everybody doesn't always get the 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 credits for it and so uh, you know when i was in school i had no clue what I was going to do. In, in fact, I was at Spelman this past week sharing with students there and, and doing a book signing uh, at my alma mater. And I, I told them that I changed my major three times because I wasn't sure how I would go about doing what I was passionate about. But what I did know was that I loved people, loved helping people, and I wanted to figure out a way to do it uh, that would translate hard things. You know, that's what I thought my, my father certainly did as an attorney. Uh, is he spoke for people and advocated for people. And I wanted to be a translator for people. And, and so sociology for me was the study of people all over the world. And it has woven its way into everything that I do, including climate and climate work. So it's one of the reasons why I can write stories now about um, the experiences of uh, how we see the murder of George Floyd and Ahmaud Arbery and Breonna Taylor as being a part of the climate crisis, how we see and visualize the lived experiences of people who are dealing with uh, social issues like voting and health care and education, but also doing it uh, through what is now our climate experience. So it's funny when you were saying a little earlier about how kids are thinking about tomorrow, our reality is we're living in climate change right now. Amen. We fact, we Amen. dealt with uh, weeks of, of tornadoes in Mississippi that we had not seen before, and they see that in Louisiana and in uh, Selma, Alabama. These are things that we are currently living through and equipping now i think our children to become resilient.
1: Definitely. You're listening to now you're talking on MPB Think Radio. I'm Marshall Ramsey and we back to our conversation with multi passionate and talented Heather McDear Tony. Heather, uh thanks for being on today. You got the big book signing this afternoon. I know you're excited about the launch of the book.
0: Yes, very much so. It seems like a long time coming, but I'm thrilled that uh the day is here and that we're getting to do it the first one right here in Mississippi at where Books in
1: Oxford. Yeah, it's kind of nice. You can just drive down the street and you're there.
0: I mean, yeah, that kind of down the street. <laughs>
1: <laughs> and, and and arguably, you know, Mississippi, we're blessed. We have the best independent bookstores in the country too. So that Absolutely. that helps too. And you know, we are. You know, you were talking about the tornadoes, and I was thinking about that. I was in. Rolling Fork, literally three days before the storm hit, and then I was there a couple of weeks afterwards. And, of course, obviously the, 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 the town's gone. You know, 85% of the town was leveled. And Rolling Fork, an amazing historic town, just good people just and tough people. I mean, they've been literally going through the South Delta floods once again. You know, I mean, it, that's a climate situation there. And then, of course, the tornado came, the F 4 tornado came and wiped it out, too. So, and, and you start to wonder, how, how are, when you have a town in the Delta where you, it's primarily African-American, like you said in the book, that are going to be affected by the front line of, of climate change and, and so forth. So, I mean, I was just thinking about how, here are your books debuting in Mississippi, but so many of the people that are going to be on the front line and on the fence line are right here in Mississippi.
0: Absolutely. You know, the frontline communities of climate change are the communities that are impacted first and worst by climate change. And then fence line communities are communities that sit right on the fence, quite literally, of uh, corporations and facilities that put out either toxic chemicals or uh, toxic water. So you can imagine a combination of these two can be detrimental to uh, these spaces, but it's one of also the reasons why it's so important to not only protect and ensure that these are the very communities that have funding to build uh, resiliently and sustainably. So what does that mean? It means protecting the culture of those communities. And I think there are some amazing innovations that are available right now for them to be able to do so. The Inflation Reduction Act that was passed by this administration actually does provide money So that when communities like Rolling Fork need to build back, they can build back with solar, uh, they can build back with renewable energy sources that make sure that when the next storm comes, because there will be another storm, that battery backup power is there, uh, ensuring that they can build more resilient road infrastructure so that it does not tear up as quickly as it does in the past, as it has in the past. And and we know these pieces are available because we see them in other parts of the country that are very well to do. So, you know, it becomes a matter of standing up for people and community that have been in our um, a part of our culture for so long and advocating to make sure that they are receiving the funds first because they are hit the hardest.
1: And I was noticing that Katrina, of course, you know, what happened in New Orleans was, was terrible. The Lower Ninth Ward caught it on the chin, probably as, as bad as anybody because the levees failed. And then, of course, our own Mississippi Gulf coast story was very powerful as well, which it kind of affected everybody all across the board. But the building back, I know in, in Mississippi, there were, like you said, there were options and availability for funding to be able to build back stronger, to help the community withstand. And we're going to have to do that because obviously these communities are going to be affected more and more and more as more storms come roaring in.
0: Absolutely. And, you know, that's one of the things that I do through the book is every chapter in the book has a section of action items. What can you do? Because more often than not, that's the question. This seems like the big elephant in the room. Climate change is such a huge uh, issue that folks don't know where to start. And so I try to provide a space of where to just start at the at the section uh, at the end of every chapter. It gives a list of five things. And one of those five things, here's the insight into the book, one of the five things in every chapter is going to be voting. Because that is the primary means that we not only direct policy, but we direct our dollars and give instruction to make sure that the communities that are hardest hit are the ones that are first in line to receive funding and make sure that they are protected going forward
1: one of the things you do really well in the book is that you bring it down to a local level. Because I think one of the things when, when you hear climate change and sometimes your eyes can glaze over because you might think it's, oh, well, the polar bears are gone or what's 1.5 Celsius going to do to me or affect me? And you really do spell it out. You're telling, like, OK, this is what's going to happen and this is how your community is going to be affected. And these are the things that you need to be doing. You do a good job with the action, like you said, creating an action plan
0: right you know it doesn't make any difference if we're just talking about something as some some issue that's going to happen in the far-off future it it becomes philosoph- philosophical for us and not related to oh my gosh there's going to be another two storms that happen in the next two weeks and and when we begin to really understand um, what is climate change what what does it mean it, in one of the ways that i explained it in the book uh, when we talk about global warming is uh like your grandma 's crochet blanket <laughs> you know if you're you 're taking a nap and you have the crochet blanket that 's laid over top of you you can um you, you're you 're warm right you 're comfortable and you 're not uh, suffocating. but what happens when somebody comes in the room and they throw? Uh, one of the heavy quilts on top of you. Then all of a sudden you're sweating. You're hot. Your clothes are wet. Um, and if you're in Mississippi, you're drenched. That's in essence what is happening with global warming. The, the planet has a really nice crochet blanket around it that's supposed to allow us to keep certain heat in and let the heat out that needs to, to go out, out. But when we put more emissions, and that's like methane and carbon dioxide and all the stuff that comes from fossil fuels. When it gets into the air, it's like throwing that heavy quilt on us. And we are sweating. We are sweating through storms, through, through uh, hurricanes, through extreme um, weather events out west. Uh, but we can change all of that. And I think once we begin to really understand what's happening and the fact that we can impact it, it doesn't make it as scary and in fact there are a lot of opportunities for
1: us in this space let's go back real quick to your and we've got in the last segment i really want to deep dive a little bit more into the book let's talk a little bit more about your origin story so here you're mayor of Greenville. we've talked about the water issue you you got some national notice on that next thing you know you're you, you've 2009, you've been nominated to serve as a chairwoman of EPA's local government advisory committee. So, at that point, obviously, the, a new path had been blazed for you.
0: Yes, it was really, um, I think I mentioned before, i gotten a little upset about seeing the climate and environment in this different lens because I could remember people who would be in, in cotton rows and soybean rows standing up with slickers on as the flag men when crop dusters were spraying them with toxic chemicals. I can remember constantly a lot of different kinds of um, environmental injustices that took place, like the railroad cars that would come through the community and just sit with open tops on them and all types of chemicals that would be wafting through the neighborhoods. Uh, and it really Posed for me a question of what do local communities do, and the opportunity then to serve as the chairwoman for the local government advisory committee under Administrator Jackson. Uh, I took that she she appointed me to that position. Two weeks after that, the BP oil spill happened, so I was really thrown into the the fire of understanding what local communities want to see happen that will help restore the communities. How do we listen to them? And that has been the uh, template that I have built my career on. It is listening deeply to local communities and then being able to scale that um, to a national and even an international response.
1: What were some of the lessons you learned during the BP oil spill?
0: Oh, that people on the ground know their communities way more than anybody else could. Administrator Jackson charged us with going into New Orleans and listening to not only the city council members but local businesses that were in the cleanup effort. And I remember one businessman coming uh, to us, and we were—he was trying to explain to us how the the process of getting money back because you had to get re- you had to get your funds reimbursed uh You had to spend the money before you could get the money back from the federal government. And he was explaining how when we brought in these workers from out of town, we thought it was good. But they knew who was going to show up at work on Monday morning and who wasn't. And so it was just I could see it as they could such great sense because they're like, yeah, we know if, uh certain people that we've worked with for all these years. You know, they don't get check on Friday and they might not come back to the following Friday, trust us because we know who people are. We know um, who is working in our communities. We know how many times the dollar will regenerate itself through our communities if you just trust us to do it and work with us and let us help guide how the cleanup goes. And I think we found that that wasn't only true in New Orleans, but it was true all over the country. Um, And working together, even through some of the divisive issues, uh, meant that we were more efficient about restoring and then maintaining the trust of community, and we could scale that.
1: I love in the book you talk about the community meetings, and you, you say it takes three community meetings before anything truly will get done, but the first community meeting is the one that sets the tone.
0: Yes. The first community meeting especially in difficult uh, and controversial issues, those are the toughest because as an elected official or anyone serving on behalf of the public, you you know you're going to get fussed at. And that particular uh, chapter I was writing about my experience as being the regional administrator for EPA uh, in the Southeast, so I covered the seven states of the Southeast and we were in a pretty tough situation in North Birmingham, Alabama. And so I was uh, attending community meetings where people would bring pictures of the loved ones they'd lost due to cancer, and oh, basically wow. just look at me and say, "Okay, little girl, what are you going to do?" And you gotta, you have to sit through that. Um, and those were lessons that I learned from. Um, elected officials that i grew up around you know that those were the stories that came from um mayor emma cooper harris when she was a mayor in the mississippi delta years ago when i was a child and through mr al rankins who was the board of supervisors in washington county and and willie griffin and and state representative willie willie bailey those were the people that taught me that you have to and listen to the people and that you have to let them express themselves however they express themselves. And it can be tough, but if you can work through those spaces, by the time you get to that third meeting, the people who are really going to work are going to be there, and then it's going to be time to go to work.
1: 2014, you got the, you were tapped by President Barack Obama to serve as a regional EPA administrator for Region Four, like we've talked about a little bit, but that's Alabama, Georgia, Florida, Kentucky, Mississippi, North Carolina, and South Carolina, and Tennessee, and plus six tribal nations. Region Four—it's been referred to as the historically troubled region. It has a lot of um, a lot of issues going on. So you, suddenly you're thrown into that, and uh, and like you said, you were talking about the the North Birmingham, some of the the, the problems there, but. Wow, that's talk about you know jumping into to to the house when it's on fire. Um, That had to be quite an education right off the bat.
0: Oh, it was, but Region 4 also has Disney World and NASCAR and SBC football. Okay, well, that's cool. Yeah, okay, that's good. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. sign me up.
1: I'd be good.
0: Yeah, right, right. It's Region 4 against everybody else. It it is. It it is one of the most diverse regions in the country, one of the most environmental and even ecological diverse regions, and certainly from um, the demographics and people. And it's uh, a region that can lead and has led, and it was Truly, um, uh, a great honor, but a true lesson for how we are dealing with environmental justice in our country, and that was what I'd really learned from being in the region four space was that the same people who were concerned and the same families that were concerned about water in Kentucky were just like the families that were in South Florida, Florida concerned about sea level rise. And they were just like the families in Jackson, Mississippi, that wanted to know that they had didn't have lead in their water. Um, there are similarities that are drawn among communities. And if we tie into those similarities, we can identify problems and fix problems in a way that they don't have to be refixed later.
1: This is now you're talking on MPB Think Radio. I'm your host Marshall Ramsey. We've been having a great conversation with author, environmental advocate, and former mayor of Greenville, Mississippi. We got Heather Mcteer, Tony, and her book is going to be launched today up in Oxford at Square Books at five thirty. She will be signing before the street lights on come on. Black America's urgent call for climate solutions. Uh, by the way, and I understood the reference before the street lights come on, and I. I grew up in a very different neighborhood, I suppose. Uh, but I knew exactly what that meant because when those streetlights come on, that means you, it's, it's time to take action.
0: That's right. That's right. You, it's time to move. It's time to wrap up everything that you have going out on outside. If you have any intent on going outside the next day or whenever the availability arises.
1: <laughs> oh, man. I saw that. When you were saying, I was like, yep, I know exactly what that means. Because we didn't have cell phones, right? So we didn't. We, right. I mean, Mama couldn't text us. And, um, right, you know, and so she that was the sign. And and I don't know what they were like in your neighborhood. Mine were they came on real slowly. Um, They they kind of flicker. So you had like a little bit of war. It's not like they just pop on, you know. Right, right. So so you could run and make it home,
0: maybe. You could. Yeah. Maybe, and depending upon, you know, which direction you were going in, because they tended to sort of come on in a line, uh, wherever you you may be, Uh, you might be able to get there, but God help you if you didn't. And just so, you know, during the summertime. (laughs) It's a good metaphor. (laughs) It really is. (laughs) You, You... um, you helped each other. It was time to make sure, okay, we got everything up. Where is everybody? Let's get in so that we get a chance to come back out and play. Uh-huh. And that speaks so much to what's happening in the moment we're in right now with respect to climate change. Um, it's time for us to recognize that uh, streetlights are coming on. Yeah. We really have to take some action. And if we don't, we're going to be stuck in the house. And that could be quite literally uh, because of what's happening with climate, we see extremes with weather changes now that are directly uh related to climate action, so the extreme heat that we get in the summer versus the extreme versus extreme cold that we get in some parts of the winter. I'm a little remarked at the fact that today I got up this morning it was forty six degrees outside, and I was conflicted as to whether or not my child should put on boots. Shorts and a sweatshirt because it's going to be seventy-five this afternoon. But this is April, you know, and this is um, beginning to become atypical of not only the seasons and how we have experienced them, but also it's a direct correlation to what is what we're experiencing in climate change.
1: Definitely. And of course, that affects everything, like you said, whether it's tornadoes or fires or hurricanes, because then you get the Gulf of Mexico's hotter. So there's there's a lot of issues that's going to affect people. And, and also, too, I was thinking about, uh, you know, Felder was on the show before talking about peppers. I was thinking, well, that could even affect crop growth. You know, I mean, the fact that, you know, we're, we're talking crops and so forth. So the thing I, I do like about your book is that you obviously touch on the science, but you make it in a very relatable way. Uh, And you make it understand how it affects people's daily lives in the in the black community, particularly. But I mean, even I was reading it, going, "Okay, yeah, I get this. I I see what she's saying with this." Because a lot of times, when you think about climate change, and and you think, "Well, global warming or whatever," it's like, "Well, it's cold out today," so obviously it's not. But 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 you think of the thirty thousand foot stuff, you don't really think about how it can affect you on a daily basis and what you may have to do to help manage chaos when that happens.
0: Right. Right, it is. It is, and I'm so glad to hear you say that because I certainly wanted to write in a way that people could relate to, they could understand, and that they could ask questions about. And I think the favorite, my favorite chapter writing was a chapter about faith because it resonates with me very deeply. Um, I'm Southern. I'm Christian. I was raised in a faith environment, and there are so many aspects of talking about faith and climate that are often not captured in, in our spaces, in our communities, and I try to use examples um, that I knew of every single day. Like, how many of us didn't have to learn the 23rd Psalm as a part of Easter speech at some point in our life um, coming from the Mississippi Delta? But when we talk about streams and rivers and floods, the imagery that that creates for us is not the one that we think of in heaven. It is what we think about when we see those overflowing rivers in the South Mississippi Delta region um, and how to equate that with taking care of our environment, I think, is a, is a shift. It's a transformational shift that we have to make in our mind. It's what we are and what some of us should be thinking about when it comes to how are we taking care of and protecting this space. That we've been given, that we've been given charge over, uh, and that we need to make sure is not only con- here for the continuation of our communities, but from a Christian perspective, it's what God called us to do.
1: I, I always think about the the joke that, and I remember this when my career was changing. The, the joke about how the flood and the guy sitting on top of the the roof, and he you know gets sent the rowboat, and he gets to, he's saying, "No, I'm going to be saved by the Lord." And the next one was the helicopter. I'm going to be saved by the Lord. And then he ends up getting swept away by the flood, and he ends up in heaven. And he says, "Well, why didn't you come save me?" And he said, "Well, I sent a boat and a helicopter." I just I just you know, I mean, but I mean, I think we have it in our in our means to be able to do the things that we need to do. What can we do on an individual level and a community level? I think voting obviously would be number one. That's that's something that's like you said, is in every chapter of the book. What are some things that we can do as individuals to say, okay, what can I do to better take take care of this place that I live?
0: I think the first thing is normalizing climate talk and conversations, normalizing environmental conversations. It's not political. It's, it's not. I know a lot of times people don't want to go into climate change as a conversation um, because it could be controversial. But the more we just normalize these conversations and what our experience is in them, the better we become at talking about the impacts. I've had some fascinating conversations with hunters in Mississippi about the changes in deer season and duck season and how they found snakes in the deer stand at the wrong time of year. And that is normalizing a conversation. I think it's also really important for us to encourage our young people to find climate in everything that they do. I am overly (laughs) excited about where we're seeing climate change show up in video games, um, where young people are being Super creative on how they incorporate climate into their career path so whether it is film or banking or accounting the fact that they can see this as a part of their future not just something to save but something that they're going to make money in I think it speaks volumes for the opportunities we've got um, <clears throat> for our young people to really be involved and then just go outside every single day just going outside to experience what it is to be a part of um this space that we get to enjoy um one of my favorite tiktok trends was black men frolicking uh for a number of reasons one primarily being because just the freedom of being able to go outside and run and experience nature is not something that our community has had the freedom to do, especially in this part of the country. So taking those moments to um, regain ownership of our environmental space will encourage us to protect that same space.
1: And the thing I, I think I liked about your book um, the most was that there was a degree of hope about it. You know, because, I mean, this... Like I said, you watch some of the early movies, that It Could Happen Tomorrow, whatever, the one where New York freezes uh, yeah. up or whatever. <laughs> and it's like, OK. And even The Last of Us, I have to admit, was kind of scary, too, uh, speaking of a recent uh, uh, movie on HBO that had uh, climate change as being a key part of the plot. But the thing I like about your book, though, is you do – there are – number one, you provide ways to take action. Which is hopeful, right? Instead of worrying or locking down and getting in the fetal position, but also too the fact that, like I said, there are you know there are things that we can do to make things better.
0: Absolutely, the hope is what is going to keep us in a position of getting better. There's plenty of climate despair; we don't need more than that. Um, I was asked last year to be one of the writers to rewrite the ending of "Don't Look Up," and that was. A huge climate movie that had come out, the whole Leonardo DiCaprio, (laughs) the the movie on a sarcastic view of uh, what would happen with people not paying attention to climate crisis. And the scary part was people weren't paying attention to it. It was really um, solidifying what we were all thinking about. And so they asked 12 writers to rewrite the end of it with a lens of hope. And I was blessed to be one of those writers, and the way that I wrote it is very similar to the way that I write in my own book. Uh, the planet is saved by a diverse group of women who connect their network through every beauty shop, uh, hotel, every school, every church, every CEO, boardroom, all the spaces that we show up and are visibly invisible and connect to one another and say, it's over. It's now time for us to, to, to bring some resolution to this climate um, crisis that we're in. And even now, I think that keeping focus um, through hope, educating our communities Voting, reading, and just being out in these spaces can galvanize us to, um, yeah, take back what a lot of people think is already lost.
1: How Incredibly cool that you got asked to do that. I was just thinking, I like, you know, I mean, first of all, you're a rock star because you get to be on all the shows and, and so forth. And I know you've been, which has to be kind of unnerving a little bit, but you, you've mastered, you make it look very easy on that. But you, I bet you when you were mayor, you never kind of thought this kind of stuff would be happening, did you?
0: I've never in a million years, but I think it's also the reason why we have to keep such an open mind as to what opportunities are out there for yeah. us, because this could have been something that... Um, Let's just say there were a lot of people who thought I was absolutely insane for, why are you focusing on climate? Why is that important? Because climate was not a sexy issue when I was mayor at all. And I'm excited that today I'm able to not only uh, talk about and work in this space, but be the help to particularly local leaders that want to do climate and environmental justice work in communities all over the world. It's been a true journey to say, you know, there are solutions that exist when we just have conversations with one another. And it's um, even more important that I do this from the perspective of being someone from Mississippi, someone who is stereotypically cast as a group that doesn't have a concern about climate. Uh, Every day I'm like, no, 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 no. Uh, There are a lot of people, particularly those of us in the Southeast, who come from a lived experience of environmental injustice, who are saying we're here to be a part of these solutions and to see those solutions embraced is beautiful.
1: Well, once again, the book signing is this afternoon or this evening as well. It's Square Books in Oxford, Mississippi at 530. The book is Before the Streetlights Come On, Black America's Urgent Call for Climate Solutions. Heather, this is is great. Uh, In the last minute and a half, are there any thoughts you'd like to cover and how can folks find out more about you?
0: Well, they can um absolutely. I'm I'm again thrilled to to be doing this. I hope that everyone has a chance to go out and to get the book. You can order it uh online, so from your favorite local bookseller or um from your favorite online dealer. And then also to uh keep up with me, check in, I'm on all the social medias. So you can find me at Head McTier Tony <clears throat> uh on Instagram, Twitter uh Facebook, TikTok, all of them and then uh to follow us at com.
1: That is awesome, Heather. This is, this has been really a lot of fun. Thank you so much for for jumping in and joining us today.
0: Thanks so much. I'm so glad that you had
1: me. Oh, it's been great. And I love the fact that <laughs> I love the fact though, that that you you promote and you understand that really the number one way to change the world is through our communities.
0: It is. They are the most powerful asset that we have and uh really our secret weapon because we haven't seen the full power of communities stepping forward on climate yet. But there are so many pathways to do that and particularly uh as we are getting into climate innovation and that's a whole nother conversation we can have, Marshall, but I'm I'm just really excited to see the the new businesses, the new jobs the new innovations and creativity that can be located right here in the Mississippi area. See, ending
1: on a positive note, I love that. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. And thank you for listening. And a special thanks to our guest, Heather McTeer-Tony, for joining us today. And if you'd like to hear this or any past episodes, you can subscribe to the podcast on your favorite podcast app or on our MPV public media app. Now You're Talking is a production of MPB Think Radio with episode and podcast produced by Jermaine Flood. So stay tuned. Southern Remedy Healthy and Fit is coming up next. And join us again next Monday at 10 a.m. I'm Marshall Ramsey. Y'all have a great week. This is an
0: MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand.